0: is Sound & Vision from KEXP in Seattle. I'm Emily Fox.
1: And I'm John Richards. On this show, we'll hear about the latest album from Noah Gunderson. He says this is his most personal album yet, but he's also trying to stay away from a certain stereotype. I think there's this like
2: <laughs> tradition of like male singer-songwriters being self-involved in their own self-imposed pain
0: black belt eagle scout will talk about her new album it's called at the party with my brown friends as a person of color i think it's really
3: important to have people of color in your support group to to help you feel even more supported and feel i guess some familiarity
1: with life We'll check in with Jeff Tweedy of Wilco about his new book and latest music. Most of it was written when his father died.
4: I mean, what else are you gonna write about? <laughs> and it's a, it's a kind of a big moment in your life being orphaned. It really feels like you're an orphan, even though you're 50 years old.
0: We'll hear how Jay Som took her music to another level on her latest
5: album. I think I sort of like accepted that albums don't define me. They don't define my sound, and they won't define. How I make f-
1: music in the future. But first, the presidents of the United States of America. Those are a few hits from the presidents of the United States of America that they made in the 90s. The band was fronted by Chris Ballou. And for the past 10 years, Ballou has released 16 albums under a solo project of his called Casper Baby Pants, where he writes music for kids. Casper Baby Pants performed live at KEXP recently. He sang about his favorite food.
6: I just want noodles and butter.
1: A fast-jumping jackrabbit. Jump,
6: jump, jack, jack, Rabbit jones, jump. Jump, jump, jack, Rabbit jones, jump.
1: Jump, jump, jack, jack, Rabbit jones, jump away. A bubble afraid of popping. And more.
6: Now being a bubble is easy as pie. I'm pretty and
1: shiny and new. But if I land on a hand
6: or touch the ground, my good times will be through.
1: I spoke with Chris Ballew after his KEXP performance, and I asked about the transition of his new fan base being parents who grew up listening to the presidents of the United States of America, as well as their little kids. I'm lucky
6: that it worked out that I found the Casper thing when I did, because it was kind of right when those people were, or some of those people were having children. And, uh, it makes it seem like maybe I'm in a war room pushing battleships around like, aha, I know exactly what I'll do. You know, 15 years, 20 years later, I'll start making children's music and I'll, you know, take over the world. But no, it's just a happy accident.
1: So when did children's music, when did it really enter your life? Like when you decided you you wanted to play kids music?
6: Well, way back in 2001, my first wife, Mary Lynn, uh, was on the board of PEPs, Program for Early Parent Support. Great, a nonprofit organization that connects new parents to alleviate fears and anxieties about parenting, and so they propose that I make a CD of classic nursery rhymes to give out at these you know group facilities like uh, group meetings that these PEPs uh, organizers would have, and I did it. And I was in the middle of a long fifteen-year arc of trying to figure out what this other music was that I was supposed to be doing the entire time I was doing the presidents. I had this little voice in my head or this sensation in my gut that said, you're not done. This is great. Congratulations. Uh, But you got to keep going because there's something else you're supposed to be doing. And it it was unclear what that was. And so I hunted and pecked outside the band. I even started bands and uh, tried all kinds of different things. And in 2001, right when I was in the midst of playing with Sir Mix a Lot and doing Subset and all this like crazy, you know, very adult theme stuff, I I do this nursery rhyme record, and I felt so relaxed when I made it. I just felt like, oh, this is nice. But it still didn't occur to me that that was a path. And then I met Kate, my second wife, and her artwork just blew my mind. It had all the qualities that I wanted to have embodied in this elusive music that I couldn't figure out. Every adjective I used to describe her artwork were the adjectives I wanted to use to describe this elusive music. So I made some music inspired by her artwork, and it wasn't until I played it back that I went, oh, it's kids music. And when I tell that story, one time somebody said, were you bummed out when you realized? (laughs) And I was far from bummed out. It was wonderful because along with the realization that I had found my voice. I also felt like I was going to get a pass from the culture of cool, from being flavor of the moment or from proving myself, you know, to be worthy of being in the top, whatever echelon of uh, charts or. So um, it was nice to feel free of that and to feel like I had finally kind of shed the pressure of having to prove myself worthy of uh, being, you know, uh, gathering the attention of the young and the hip.
1: When you were in those moments, when you got through that and were maybe by yourself, maybe you're on tour or reflecting on what has happened here, the pressure and I'm supposed to be something that I'm not possibly, or is that when the pull of what you're supposed to maybe really be doing hit you? Uh, It hit me more
6: than for sure, but it's always been for some reason, I've always had this uh, drive to find out who I am authentically musically. I I kind of always had this drive to make um the music that is most honestly me. I don't want to put on an artifice. I don't want to put on a literal costume or a figurative metaphorical costume to or a mental uh space to get on stage. I wanted to just be who I am. And so part of that was it took me a long time to figure out who I am and what I really want. Um I only knew that the presidents was almost it. You know, it was like 92% perfect, (laughs) (laughs) but there was something like, uh, well, part of it was that first record came out of a, uh, it followed my twenties, which were kind of a dark time. I had some, some sad times as a lot of people do in their twenties, um, bad choices, weird relationships, uh, family issues kind of stuff. So, uh, I mixed who I really am, the Casper baby pants, really the core with this dark, detritus that was left over from all these dark songs and that's why the presidents i think worked it was this friction between innocence and innuendo between innocent and uh grown-up themes and that friction the sparks from that friction made it happen
1: do you have any itch to go back to that like stadium i mean i suppose the president's like there's so many reunions and so much money being thrown at bands to to get back to is that a thing in your world or if something you considered is that something you miss we've already broken up and reunited we've ju- we're just following the rock and
6: roll brochure man we just we got it you know government issue here it is okay have a meteoric rise have hits you know without seeming to care at all um <laughs> make a lackluster second album tour until you're exhausted break up we skip the drug and alcohol
4: problem yeah, yeah we're just like cross
6: that one out still
4: time yeah
6: and then of course you know five years later reunite make more albums tour play festivals And then, uh, you know, then we just kind of... The breakup process the second time was much more enlightened.
1: Were there people in your uh, universe who couldn't understand, like, you're leaving this for kids' music? (laughs) Is there someone in your family or maybe even in your band that that had that thought? No. It's
6: funny. Everyone close to me, when they found out this is what I'm going to do, was just like, of course. You know, like... Right. But, you know, when I was... Much younger, we would have family gatherings and I had all these nieces and nephews and I'd pull out my guitar and sit on the grass and play them silly songs and stuff. It's been in me this whole time, you know? And the presidents were really close. I mean, Dune Buggy, that's a Casper yeah. song. Yeah. A doodle blind spider took the wheel Navigating grass blades completely by feel Got a sassy chassis, sparkling in the sun all four small bald, fat tires rocking through the sand and burning up. Little dune buggy in the sand. A little blue dune buggy in my hand. You know, I th- I toyed around for a minute with doing uh, Casper covers the Presidents album and, oh. and, and like altering lyrics and reinventing the songs, but i I tried a couple, and those songs need the friction. They <laughs> they're fine. As they are. So.
1: When, when the presidents were playing shows here in town and, and, um, and in the clubs, like you were at the club level, just right on the edge of, of breaking through. Yeah. It was at a time where, where music was so dark here in the city. It was like a dark time. You had the, the death of Kirk Cobain. You had mm-hmm. this sort of grunge thing. It had been watered down. A lot of bands had moved here. And, uh, and, and you kind of came out of, uh, for me, uh, I remember there was joy. It was joy at your shows, and it was such a nice change of pace. We would go there knowing our night was going to be a great night because yeah. you guys were going to bring it, yeah. And it was going to be fun, and you are going to make us participate, and yeah. like all the things that were not happening. It had gotten so kind of dark and gloomy, and the quality had gone down around that time a little yeah, bit. Yeah, because all the bands
6: that really made the scene happen were on tour. They're gone, and we. The positive side of the po- of the sort of aftershock of the initial grunge explosion was that every club was full every night because yes. everybody wanted to see the next big thing. And it was amazingly fertile ground for us to plant our seed in. It was incredible. Uh, so we'd play on a Tuesday at the Crocodile and the place was jammed. And so it just kind of elevated our uh, opportunities. And Jason Finn, our drummer, he, booked at, he was booking at Mo. And so he had an idea. He was like, hey, let's just try to book the band like every weekend and see what happens. See if people stop coming.
1: Yeah. And they didn't. (laughs) They just kept coming. That is unheard of now. You would never be able to book every week. Because I remember I had this memory of going to your shows. Like, were we going every weekend? It felt like we (laughs) were. And then we'd be at iSpy or we'd be at the backstage. And I I miss that club. And uh, man, there's some great clubs. I just signed
6: a poster for the last show. We played the last show there. We made the last sounds on that Ah. stage. So that was a very storied night. Well, Casper Baby Pants, Chris Blue, wow. thank you. Thank you, John. Always good to talk to you. Good luck with the new record. Thank you, but I'm a professional. I don't need luck. Actually, I do. Sorry, I don't want to curse myself. Okay.
1: <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. Luck, yes. And by the way, you can see Casper Baby Pants perform live. He has lots of shows happening across the region this year. And he'll be at Seattle Town Hall for two shows next Saturday. The first one will be at 10.30 a.m. and the next 12.30 in the afternoon.
0: This is Sound and Vision on KEXP. I'm Emily Fox. Seattle-based singer-songwriter Noah Gunderson is out with his fourth full-length solo album. It's called Lover. He joins me now to talk about it. Hi, Noah. Hi. The first track on this album is really stunning. It's called Robin Williams, and you mention his death towards the end of the song, and then you wrap the whole thing up with this line.
2: So I gather
0: my impressions
2: of the universal side And hope that someone's listening the radio tonight, though it doesn't really matter with so many come before. And who the hell are we for? No one buys records anymore.
0: So that last line no one buys records anymore. <laughs> So really why did you try
2: to set myself up for success?
0: <laughs> why did you want to make this record?
2: <laughs> um so this that song in particular is kind of just like a laundry list of reflections. This whole record is I think the most personal thing that I've ever done. And just trying to not have any filter on what I was feeling about kind of my place in my career, place in my life, you know, expectations and and also just like the uncertainty of the of the music business and how much everything has changed and how much it's changed so fast and like acknowledging my own insecurity in that and not knowing what's going to happen. Um, also, I just felt like it was a clever way to end the first song. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, you had just mentioned that you said that this was a very, very personal record um, and in your bio... Um, You said, quote, this is a record is very is deeply personal. It's about love. It's about failure. It's about drugs. It's about sex. It's about age. It's about regret. It's about itself. Very meta. I know. And it's about finding peace. Uh, And then you go on to think to say, I think it's um, the most I've ever put um, of myself into something. Um, It's been cathartic. And you've cried a lot.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So how was that process for you? I mean, emotionally to to put yourself out there um, and in, in this way.
2: Well, I think it's, you know, hearing, even hearing that being read back to me, um, my music's always been really personal and very kind of confessional. But I think some previous records, there was this sense of maybe romanticizing my own pain a little bit. I think there's this, like, (laughs) tradition of, like, male singer-songwriters being self-involved in their own, like self-involved in their own self-imposed pain, um, where it's like, I have these issues, and isn't it kind of romantic? And I kind of started to become cognizant of that, a few records in, and just felt like it was kind of tropish and didn't want to pursue that direction again, but I didn't really know how to break out of that. So the last record I did was a lot more... um, kind of at arm's length because that's what I thought it was to be different than that. But I think I missed out on some opportunities for vulnerability. And so with this one, the intention is to be vulnerable and open, but without like being self-indulgent in your own bullshit. So this, this record, I think because there were things happening in tandem in my own personal life. Um, there were, some expectations that I had for my career and for the last record that just essentially weren't met. There were relationship expectations that didn't happen. Um, there was some really positive experiences with psychedelics that kind of got me out of my own ego. And therapy, too. Just finally, like, recognizing that... It become, I guess part of it is just accepting who I am instead of constantly trying to shift and change that if that makes any sense.
0: Well, even in your bio, you had mentioned your therapist, that your mm-hmm. therapist said something about how art um, is is used to like express yourself. Yeah, it's way. like the, heard...
2: the self talking to the self. The self yeah.
0: talking to the self. That was yeah. the line. Yeah, yeah, I thought that uh, was really beautiful.
2: Yeah, yeah. She's, uh, she's very helpful. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so the album title at first, um, well, now it is called Lovers, the title of this album by Noah Gunderson. But first you were thinking about calling it um I hope you meet everything you fear.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, which would have been um a little less confusing to the Taylor Swift camp. <laughs> um but yeah, I I think part of that was just because I felt the direction of the record was going in this like like reflections on on disappointments. Um but how those disappointments uh help us grow, which does feel kind of trite to say, but it's I think getting broken to a certain place is really important for growth. Um, I think the ego is a big hindrance in our growth as people.
0: Yeah. You've also said that there are songs in this record that you wrote years ago um, without really grasping their meaning until now. Mm -hmm. What are some of those songs?
2: So the second song on the album is called Crystal Creek, and I wrote the first verse of it like six years ago just kind of dinking around. and Is this everything you wanted? Now that it's everything you have. These lines kind of came to me and didn't really have a real sense of what they meant, And then, um, but they resonated with me in some way. And that's, I think, that self-talking-to-the-self thing. Um, and then we were in the studio and needed a second verse, and, and I think it sort of made itself known to me that it was a song about like reflecting on... Kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier with uh, like the self-involved sadness of the male singer-songwriter, that you're like, now that this is what I have, is this actually what I want? Um, and, and also being like, reflecting on getting older as an artist and having some years under my belt now, where I can look back and be like, man, I was really hungry at this point in my career. but So that was where that song ended up. I didn't know it was going to end up there. Just wanted to be somebody. Just wanted to understand why you had to be so lonely. Did you have to be? You have to be. So now you
0: So another song that really stuck with me on this album is the song Watermelon. Um, I, I find it to be about love, growing up, failure, and there's this line in there where you sing.
3: My heart beats
2: like a tattoo on an old tin drum. It's rolling down a great gravel road from a house that used to be mine. Hard
0: Can you break down the personal story you're telling here?
2: <laughs> yeah, so when I was a kid, um, our uh, our house burned down. We lived at the end of this like really long gravel road, and um, the fire trucks couldn't find the house. So I ended up, I was like, I think it might have been 12. Um, it was in the middle of the winter, and like ended up like running down this gravel road to find the fire trucks so they could kind of get back up to the place and it's just this weird like pivotal moment in my life that i think of a lot um and i think the analogy is that you know that as you know like a literal home burning down um so yeah
0: that must have been crazy i mean that must have been really hard i mean Mm -hmm. how was your family impacted by that fire
2: we all uh, thankfully everyone was safe there was no one was hurt um and they rebuilt yeah and then they ended up losing that home uh, in bankruptcy like several years later so the whole idea of home I think for me has been subconsciously maybe a big part of my art and what I make and how I think about security and um, also having just been a part like I started touring when I was like 16 so I think there's been a part of me that's always wanted home, but always felt very disconnected from it. Um, And then that song in itself kind of ties that wanting familiarity and home with a person um, and the kind of unreasonable expectation that can put on another person and then the whole idea of monogamy and how that's couched in connection and how it's always been a problem for me. Um, So. A lot of these songs are just kind of fragmented, scattered thoughts that all ended up attached to certain melodies.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm curious. So you're about 30, yeah?
2: Yeah, I just turned 30.
0: I feel like that was a big decade. I just turned 30 about two years ago, and yeah. I feel like that was a part of my life. I mean, especially as a woman, being like, okay, how am I going to set up the rest of my life? Totally. Am I going to be a childbearer? If so, how do I figure that out? You know? Mm-hmm. And, and And it's like, okay, I'm not in my 20s anymore. I can't go out and party and do all these things i need yeah. to figure out like how am i going to set roots and what yeah. does that look like
2: and you like start to be like you're don't you're not invincible anymore and it kind of there's a few you know some physical things that happened in the last year or two where i'm like oh shit, i'm not I'm, I'm gonna die eventually <laughs> and i the i gray do gray
0: hairs I, start popping oh, up man, yeah. yeah there's a
2: lot <laughs> um but at the same time it's really great to be in the space where like i feel like i I'm not a kid trying to be somebody as, as much and feeling a little more grounded in who I am um, with, the, with all the flaws.
0: I'm speaking with Noah Gunderson, and actually one of the tracks on your latest album is called Older. Let's take a listen.
7: We sit around on
2: The lines and the action. We don't have to think. We don't have to think. How oh,
8: we're all getting older. We're
0: all getting older. It seems to be kind of about we're some painful truths about getting older and. and and finding maybe you have like a lack of meaning in your life, um, <laughs> or or you're kind of going through the motions, right? Yeah. And you don't really reflect on like, okay, what is it that I wanted? Yeah, um, and
2: things also just speeding up. And I think that song in particular, there was very much a season where I was almost at the end of my twenties, and I think I was subconsciously really raging against that. So going really hard um, and kind of partying a lot. And seeing that kind of unspoken existential sadness in in everyone around me who is also experiencing this feeling of like, okay, we are getting older and things are changing and the world is also changing really fast. And it just becomes easier to try to distract yourself than to have to be with that.
0: Do you have a... A favorite song on the album, like either a song that you love just sonically or a song that really means a lot to you personally?
2: Um, Kamikaze, the last song on the record, is like a pretty intense personal one for me about uh, a a relationship that I put a lot of work into that ultimately didn't work out.
0: Yeah, I I wrote down Kamikaze as just, again, another line that struck me, which is the line, pump me full of drugs because now you're asking for an anchor a suicidal savior or kamikaze love. Mm-hmm. That's pr- that's a lot. That's a lot right there. Yeah.
2: Pump me and drugs Cause now you're asking for And then Wild Horses is was kind of a last minute edition of the record that I ended up really kind of falling in love with because it I feel like it ties the kind of sound that I started out making with elements of something new and with some perspective. So
0: I've been speaking with Noah Gunderson. His latest album, Lover, is out now. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Give me a minute to my sin. Want you to know me. This is Sound & Vision. Black Belt Eagle Scout released a new album on Friday. It's called At the Party with My Brown Friends. Run it Run it Black Belt Eagle Scout is led by Catherine Paul, who grew up on Washington's Swinomish Reservation. Black Belt Eagle Scout recently performed as part of Washington's Thing Festival. During KEXP's live broadcast at Thing Fest, KEXP's Morgan Chosnick caught up with Black Belt Eagle Scout about the new album.
9: Black Belt Eagle Scout, we're so happy to have you back on our airwaves live here on KEXP. Hey. You were uh, last with us just this past October for your debut album, uh, Mother of My Children. And now you are back with a new record that is officially out called uh, At the Party with My Brown Friends. We're so excited that you have this new record. And uh, your your first record was a very personal document of some hard times that we're, you were going through at the time. What's this new record about? This new record is about friendship and um
3: supportive relationships and being there um, for one another, particularly um, as a person of color. I think it's really important to have people of color in your support group to to help you feel even more supported and feel, I guess, some familiarity with life.
9: Yeah. Is that what the the phrase "at the party" sort of means to you,
3: yeah, a little bit, yeah. yeah. Um, it's like it's it's uh, very much. Uh kind of like a metaphorical type situation but also very real like you can when you're at the party like and you're feeling awkward like i find personally that i'm just gonna go find my brown friends and it's gonna be better mm-hmm. um but also like as a metaphor for like what it is to walk in this life that we have in the world and like how the political systems are and like how hard that can be and then how um you know it's just, it's important to, to find
0: your support system. And here's a song, At the Party, off the new album from Black Belt Eagle Scout.
1: This is Sound and Vision. I'm John Richards. Wilco is releasing a new album in October called Ode to Joy. Meanwhile, the band's frontman, Jeff Tweedy, performed during KEXP's live broadcast at Thingfest in Port Townsend. KEXP's Morgan Chosnick spoke with Tweedy about his latest music and book.
9: So, you've had a really busy year. Last November, you released your personal memoir. Um, mm-hmm. And then, right after that, uh, a brand new solo album called Warm and then on Record Store Day released another one, Warmer, which was officially right. released this summer. Um, what was the whole... Did you write the book before you wrote the two solo albums, or, or did they kind of come together at the, the same time?
4: I'm always writing and working on music in the studio, so I kind of wrote the book coincident with uh, with working on those two records. And I, I think that the book affected the re- the songs on those records quite a bit actually, because I was really concentrating on learning how to write prose for the first time in my life and feel comfortable with it. And I think that the lyrics ended up being a lot more clear and incisive kind of storytelling songs, Mm -hmm. um, Maybe I just tried harder, I don't know, to be clear, because I was trying to stay focused on the book not being convoluted and being conversational, you know.
9: Mm-hmm. Did you find that the lyrics that came into your solo albums um, came from writing the book? Are there any, like, crossover of the lyrics and actual words that you said in the book?
4: I'm sure there is. Uh I think that if the book was written in a few years, you know, from now, or had been written a few years from now, I probably wouldn't have written as much about my father dying because it, it happened at the, you know, right when I was finishing the book, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of the songs on the both the the, the warm and warmer record ended up being about you know, that kind of reflection. So it's hard to say, I mean, what else are you going to write about? <laughs> and it's a, it's a kind of a big moment in your life being orphaned at, <laughs> Yeah, event. You know, it, it's, it really feels like you're an orphan, even though you're 50 years old. So
9: yeah. The person who gave you life. Yeah. yeah that makes sense. Yeah. Where did the title Ode to Joy come from for, for this Beethoven. Record? Well, yes. But for you, <laughs> what does it mean to you for this record?
4: Um, it was, uh, I think when I make uh, songs up and I put them in my phone like a little uh, voice memo, a lot of times I'll just give them stupid names. And there was a song that ended up being called Before Us on the record that I'd called Ode to Joy forever because it was just, it felt m- morbid. It, and and then um, we started calling the record that for some reason and and we couldn't come up with anything that felt like it was as appropriate because it's um it can be a little bit of a harrowing record. It's a it's it's uh there's some discomfort to I think the way that the 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 sonic landscape unfolds on that record. But at the same time we all felt very joyous about discovering those sounds, mm-hmm. so it felt not ironic. It wasn't meant to be. This is the most depressing a- at record ever, so we're going to call it "Ode to Joy," <laughs> which is what my youngest son Sammy was afraid of. He was, he was fearful that people would take it that way. Yeah. um he wanted the record to be called "The Trouble with Caring," mm, which that's uh, really good. Yeah, that's a good title too. But I thought that that was a little bit too, too on the nose. Yeah, you know, yeah, I, I felt un, I felt uncomfortable with that. <laughs> <laughs> it was my I was my title. I had pitched it to him, but he uh, he he latched onto it and was he, yeah. He almost disowned me.
1: That was Jeff Tweedy of Wilco at ThingFest. Fest. And Wilco's upcoming album Ode to Joy will be released in October. Here's a single off the record. The song is called Love Is Everywhere. Beware. Hey.
0: This is Sound & Vision. JSOM som is out with a new album. KEXP's Dusty Henry has this profile.
7: The title of JSOM's soms new record, Anako, translates to my child in the Philippine language Tagalog. It's a phrase Melina Duterte, the mastermind songwriter and producer behind the project, says she's heard her mother call her all her life. A term of endearment, of love and comfort.
5: Just the way she greets me all the time, just like asking me how I am. She's like, hi, Anako, how are you? We're like, hi, Anako, I miss you.
7: Anako is an album created amidst and from change in Duterte's personal and creative life. Given that, tying the album together with something warm and familiar feels like an understandable choice. In the last two years, Duterte has uprooted herself from her hometown of Oakland, California, and set off for Los Angeles. Coupled with eight months of touring, writing, and pursuing a multitude of projects, Duterte is anything but idle. Her life and environment have changed, and naturally, the music will flow in that direction as well. Jsom's last record, Everybody Works, moved in a breathless, dreamlike haze, as you can hear in songs like Remain. Duterte's voice and instrumentation meld together, held together by a beautiful sonic gauze made up of tasteful reverb, adventurous home studio production, and impeccable songwriting. In contrast, Anako practically bursts from the speakers. Less amorphous than its predecessor, the album is Duterte's most immediate work. Her music has never sounded brighter, more immediate, or this pristine. There's the Power Pop polish of Superbike, the The blissed out banger Devotion that rivals any Top 40 spectacle. Meanwhile there's the guttural rocker Peace Out. The acoustic surge of Crown showcases just how much bite her songwriting packs. Until this point, JSON records were recorded by Duterte solo. She is no stranger to collaboration, having recently produced and engineered records for acts like Chastity Belt and Sasami. However, Anako is the first time she's brought outside contributions to a JSON
5: album. I think it was, like, a really different experience than, like, recording with myself because I feel like you kind of get sucked into being, like, a perfectionist when you're by yourself and you're not able to, like, look at yourself outside of your work.
7: After touring with the band behind Everybody Works, there was an energy to those live performances that she wanted to harness on Anako. She brought in her touring band to perform on the
5: record. Because everyone brings something new to the table, and I think that's also why I wanted to, like, implement different people into the record, too. It's just, like, different perspectives through music that's so, like, valuable.
7: One thing that stayed consistent for Duterte is home recording. Like the album's predecessors, once again, Duterte opted to record the album herself instead of heading into a big-budget recording studio.
5: There's, like, a just a big part of me that can't let that go. It's sort of, like, control and comfort that's so important to me because I think... One of my favorite parts about writing music is the fact that I can just record in that moment.
7: While certainly home recording is not a new idea and is frequently used by artists in the indie rock sphere, Duterte continues to prove herself a master of her form. Listening to Anako, you'd be hard-pressed to disagree with her choice. It's easy to listen to the record and just marvel at her studio wizardry. This can be felt throughout the album, but especially on the experimental title track, in which she plays with drum machines and chaotic psychedelic textures. (laughs) Going through this period of change and recording this album, Duterte continues to not just look forward, but embrace the idea of change.
5: I think I have sort of like accepted that albums don't define me. They don't define my sound and they won't define how I make music in the future.
7: Duterte says she's always looking to improve her skills as a songwriter and producer. But listening to Anako, it's clear that she's already excelling with another adventurous and gorgeous suite of JSON material. Her sound continues to change and grow, but she's consistent in crafting records that sound spectacular and backed with tender, honest songwriting. For KEXP's Sound and Vision, I'm Dusty Henry.
0: This is Sound and Vision on KEXP. I'm Emily Fox,
1: and I'm John Richards.
0: So, John, we had Mixtape Week this week, uh, all every single day on KEXP.
1: Yeah. So, a few years ago, came up with this idea to have our amazing audience um, submit their favorite mixtapes that they made or make a new mixtape. It kind of, it kind of evolved over over our thinking. You know, it started with just mixtape, but then you're like, well, people made CDs, right? They make digital playlists, and then even new playlist. So we kind of opened it up to everybody. Um, And so we put it out there in July, like, please submit. We had no idea with these new themes we come up with if anyone's going to send anything. Well, we had an onslaught of mixes and it was very cool. You become the DJ. And uh, we went through them. had a lot of fun trying to figure out like what the best mixtape was, but also just which mixes which stories would be great to hear on the air, what songs would bring you back, what deep cuts haven't you heard in years, or just what, what, like, time capsule we could jump into. And we jumped into a lot.
0: So, I mean, you being a DJ, you work with mixes every single day. What makes a good mix or a mixtape in your mind?
1: Well, you know, and, and, and to get back to that, like, that's how I became a DJ. You know, when I was a kid, I made mixes. I had dual cassette player. Um I would make CD mixes and I'd give them to friends, and people liked them, so I kind of was going off that. you know what when we made mixes for each other what what made a great mixtape to me there's little things you know this is like high fidelity if you 've seen that movie in John Cusack, we should throw in some clips because there's amazing quotes in there like he he nails uh, in that movie uh, from the book, uh, just how you make a mixtape, the art of the mixtape anyway for me it's like you gotta have a strong opening track that sets the tone. You have to have that ending track that brings it all home with whatever you're trying to achieve in this mixtape. I don't care if you're just trying to expose new music or it's a love mix or a breakup mix or a, you know, life is good, life sucks, a road trip, whatever it is, right? So you gotta start strong, you gotta end strong, uh, like in life. But in the middle there, that's where really, you know, the winners are set apart from the others. You gotta have that deep cut. You gotta have that discovery song that you've you from a from an artist you've heard of, but you've never heard that song maybe, or it's been years. And we had a lot of those. You gotta have that, uh, but you gotta have that like that that mix, like the the rhythm and the beats are close to each other. You don't have to be dead on, but you gotta keep that flow going. You can't just be abrupt. And if you are abrupt, you gotta do it right. Like we had a Judy Garland mix into Audio Slave from someone this week. That could have been jarring. Nope, it was. It, it worked. <laughs> So Judy Gar, we had a John Denver mix uh, out of the far side. So hip-hop and John Denver worked because of the way they put them together. So it's how you flow. It's your message. It's those deep cuts. Maybe you you can sneak a classic rock song in there. That was always a thing I would do. You know, suddenly an ACDC song would show up. Stones always worked. Uh, and then there's certain like um, – not all had to have the, you know, seminal songs in there. But do you know what the number one song was in the mixes that came in? <gasps>
0: No, what is
1: it? Love will tear us apart. Joy Division. That makes Aww, sense to me.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> that could go on so many different kinds of mixes. The band that was on there the most secure, uh, REM, was on there a lot. These are bands with a massive catalogues. So they were huge at the time when tapes were being made, mostly right um, before technology just ruined us. <laughs> And uh, so you we didn't you, have
0: to work for it anymore.
1: You know, yeah, there's yeah, you really don't work as hard, no. right? So it's kind of neat that we get people working again because there was a lot of a new mix as well. So it's how you mix a music. It's those secret songs, those ones that jump out at your flow. But it's also the way you present it. It's the way you write the track listing. It's the way you put the art on there. Even if the art is the track list, I always suffered there. My handwriting is terrible, Emily. Mm-hmm. But it, but so I would get points docked. But my titles were always pretty good. Besides my awesome mixtape which is from Boogie Nights, um, there'd be different tapes that would sum up whatever it was. So those, there's so many different things that we put into it. And any music nerd out there is agreeing, right? Like, yes, you do not just dial in and put a bunch of songs together. This is important work.
0: So we're going to—I reached out to a lot of um, folks that submitted mixtapes this week. We had more than 350 submissions, um, and, and I was looking for people's stories because that was a part of yeah. the submission process of what is the story behind the mixtape, and there were some really powerful stories um, this week that came in this week. So, so here's just a few of those stories um, and the songs, you know, maybe a song also that was a part of that mixtape.
10: Hi, my name is Natanya. I am from Seattle, and uh, the reason I was so excited— To make a mixtape, was um, in the past year I've been processing the passing of my father and really thinking a lot about the things that I still have to hold on to from him, you know, his legacy. We had a really rough relationship. He is a child of trauma, so therefore I am a child of trauma. And while we never really spoke about our mutual love of music, it's so integral into my memories about him and even in his final months of his life when he couldn't talk and he couldn't eat and take care of himself, if you put his headphones on him, his hands would move like they always did conducting the symphony or just resonating physically with the music. And so one of the songs that I had to put on the mixtape for me was Reckoner, this song that... It's like my whole body just vibrates with the beauty and the movement of that song. And so it's songs like these that I can carry forward throughout my whole life, knowing that I have this part of my dad with me wherever I go. Because
8: This is Edward Walensky from San Diego, California. And my mixtape is about family and that connection of family. It's also about laughter, learning, permanence, loss, and love. About six years ago, my wife and I adopted our son, um, and we invited a stranger into our, our home and, and took the biggest leap of faith one, one can take. The thing about our home is, is that there's always music on. It's what my wife and I bonded over when we, we first met. And this music w- is what helped us connect with our son. It, it gave us a common dialogue, um, uh, a shared language uh, that enabled strangers to, to communicate, which is what music really, really does. It, it helped him connect with us. And it's over the years turned into a ferocious, unwavering love the uh, mixtape I submitted was a a family collaboration it's a a snapshot if you will of our family It, it grows and shrinks new songs are added others are deleted the order moves around it's not necessarily clean in fact it's messy it's organic and it's always changing just like we are as a family and as individuals But when we sat down, we decided that this was the order for today, tomorrow, just like our family and just like us as individuals, we will be different. Uh, One of the songs that really sticks out to my son, who is very independent and strong willed is It's My Life by The Animals. He loves the chorus. It's my life. I will do what I want. It's my mind, I don't think what I want. I've been dealing with that statement ever since he was a little one, and I'm sure we'll be going to therapy about it.
11: I'm Nathan Huser. I'm from Linwood, Washington. And my mixtape story is really about pathology, which is like a a disconnect or a malfunction, right? With like society or a system, or in my case, me, my uh, body, and uh, recovery. So, uh, about five years ago, I had a really significant health issue and uh, needed to make some pretty significant lifestyle changes, and that included exercise and walking consistently with my beautiful black lab, Shiloh, with my wife, Tran, and my son, Preston, supporting me along the way. And um, this mixtape is really about me walking with my dog and listening a lot to my favorite band, Radiohead. And even though some of the themes in their music are dark, really taking those themes and thinking about them and noticing beauty in my, uh, during my walks and experiencing things along the way, both musically and otherwise, that are really life-affirming, including How I Made My Millions, which is um, one of my favorite tracks on my mixtape and holds a really important place uh, for me personally.
12: I'm Jamie Alls and the mix that I submitted was called Jim's Kentucky Hybrid and that was called that because it's a hybrid of two uh, cassettes that my friend Jim made uh, for a road trip that we did to uh, Mountain Stage, an NPR show back in 1992. So Jim had way better taste in music than I did. And I was in the synth pop and stuff. And, he, and on, these, on the tapes that he had made were Grant Parker and Robin Hitchcock and Danielle Lenoir and all these great uh, songwriters that I had never heard of. And so I made a cassette of the stuff that he had turned me on to. Uh, and that was where the hybrid part came in. So anyway, uh, that was sort of the end of the story until the following year, I decided to move to Seattle and Jim was going to go with me he had never been to Seattle so he flew out here to check it out and while he was out here he went on a solo hike up Mount Angeles at Olympic National Park and while he was at the top of that hike he ran into a father and his two girls and they um offered to take his picture and then he offered to take theirs and they were going to send him the picture uh via the mail because you know pre-digital photos and all that and so they go down the mountain and he's up there by himself and a Apparently he loses the trail and uh, he fell off on the way down and he was missing for about a week and then they found his body. So he had perished on the the top of Mount Angeles. So we never got to do that trip together. So he was going to come out with me to Seattle, but I drove out by myself and Jim's Kentucky Hybrid, that tape that I made, plus the two tapes that that I came from were my companion on that trip. And... um, You know later when the father that he met on top of the mountain had discovered what had happened he had sent a picture of jim that he had taken like moments before he left the earth and so we have that picture of him and i have these tapes uh as my memory uh, of him
1: to everybody who submitted their stories. Jamie Alls here from KEXP. Man, his if you've seen those pictures of his friend who died, it's pretty amazing. And that's, I should mention, wasn't just listeners, but staff.
0: And in, in that photo was a part of the mixtape, wasn't it? Was it was
1: part of the mixtape. Yeah. So it jumped out. Um, and man, some amazing stories coming in, and more than we could ever have asked for. One of our themes. But this happens every time we do something. I'm not just kissing up to you, KXP friends out there. You really do come through, and it it actually meant a lot to a lot of people. So thank you to everybody who submitted those mixtapes. And I can tell you, Emily, you were there the other day when we said, well, we got to do this next year.
0: Yes. Yeah. yeah.
1: So you have another year, friends. Prepare. Prepare your mixtape. Start digging in those attics or start thinking of a friend you want to make a new mix for or keep track of those songs. And I'm telling you, for your own mental health... Creating these mixes. Um, it's really a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So moving on to our credits this yes. week. We have some people to thank. Thank you so much to Owen Murphy, Dusty Henry, Morgan Chosnick, with production assistance from Hans Anderson. And as we wrap up the show We ask, why does music matter? And this week, we ask Noah Gunderson, whose latest album called Lover, not to be confused with the same title track as Taylor Swift's album that was recently released. Uh, Noah Gunderson came on the show um, earlier this hour to talk about his new album, and we asked him, why does music matter?
2: I think there's this level of depth to the human experience that needs a voice. Um, and I think music and art are abstract enough, but still grounded in something material that allow people to feel validated or even just to understand their own experience as a human being. There's such a wide breadth of like experience and emotion and perspective and all these things that music, I think, grounds that for people. It does for me.
0: Well, that was Sound and Vision. Thanks so much for listening, and please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. It makes a huge difference, lets other people know about these shows. If you want to go the extra mile, you can always give a one-time $20 donation at kexp.org slash sound. Thanks again. See you next week.